across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour, the programme that talks about local food and drink news with food stories from around the city. And on today's menu, we have got food historian Dr. Emmeline Rood talking about food security. We'll be highlighting the anniversaries of a few well-loved local establishments and bringing you plenty of local food and drink news and a smattering of industry jobs available. So, on to our first feature, and it's Cambridge Organic, which we used to know as Kofco. They've achieved a remarkable quarter of a century in business, celebrating their 25th birthday on the 4th of April, actually. Cambridge Organic has developed in that time from being simply a fruit and veg box delivery scheme to an organisation that's showing the way to champion small organic producers, give consumers what they want, and minimise the impact on the environment. Cambridge Organic has done a lot, and there's more to come. Alan spoke with founder Duncan Catchpole about how it all started and how it's developing. Duncan, many congratulations on 25 years in business. So this, that's an extraordinary amount of time. And in case there's anybody listening who doesn't know what Cambridge Organic is or what Cambridge Organic does, what do you do? Well, uh, in a nutshell, we're uh, an organic vegetable box scheme. So we, uh, we deliver boxes that are um, packed with fruit and veg that's come directly from organic farms that are local to Cambridge and we deliver them to people's homes. And how's it going? If you've gone for 25 years it yes, must be going yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's going okay. I mean, it's, it's still still just being in business <laughs> seems like quite an achievement the, the way things uh, have been lately but uh, but yeah we're, we're still here we're still going strong. And what difference do you think you're making because I know you're very keen on sort of environmental issues and the fact that you deal mostly in organic produce is part of that. So, when you look over your 25 years, what sort of difference would you say you'd made? A long time ago, I think we we sort of ceased being a, a conventional business and and we're much more mission driven. Really, do want to sort of try and change the food system for the better. Of course, it's. You know, it's beyond the resources of a small business like ours to actually like change the food system. But I think the importance of what we're doing is actually sort of being able to demonstrate, or at least being able to offer that sort of alternative way of doing things. And I think that's the that's the most important or the biggest impact that we are having is that you know if there is somebody living locally who wants to access uh, good quality, fresh, locally grown organic fruit and vegetables, then we are offering a means for them to to do that and when it comes to our operations we work with the philosophy that um you know we we don't want all the good work that's been done into growing these this fruit and veg organically to be undone by the supply chain so so yeah we, we do aim that our actual operations reflect the sort of environmentally considerate way in which the food itself was produced and you've just said this is a mission 
Uh, was it a mission 25 years ago? Absolutely not, no. <laughs> right. uh, and uh, 25 years ago, did I think I'd still be here sort of talking to you in this studio now? Ab- absolutely not. It, it, it's something that I stumbled into originally. We had a, a, a link to um, some of the early veg box schemes that go around because I grew, grew up on, a, on a, an organic apple orchard near Bury St Edmunds. That's was my sort of introduction to it but you know I was at college at the time I just wanted a way of making a little bit of sort of spare cash on the side <laughs> um, and so so started dabbling in organic veg boxes. And in those 25 years what's happened about the number of local growers the number of local suppliers in your 25 years what's the trend is it on the up or is it on the down or is it about the same? I'd, I'd say it's about the same. There, there was a, a, a in the early days um, of being in business, there, I'd say it was on the up, but it's remained very, uh, very constant since. And and this is a really critical question um, that you've asked there because I, I think when when you ask people to sort of like you know perhaps sort of imagine what uh, what an ideal food system would be like they would imagine you know lots of sort of local producers sort of in the in the rural hinterland you know perhaps a sort of nice, nice sort of bucolic imagery but you know that 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 isn't really isn't the case um you know the the sustainable farmers in our area are you know they, they are still few and far between and it's a very very difficult profession to um to make a, a living in and well, not not just uh, not just growers, but sort of small scale food enterprises in, in general, um, sort of really struggle to make a, a decent living for themselves because they exist in the face of massive competition from the global sort of food giants um, who are using chemicals to boost their productivity. Ab- absolutely, uh, and you know marketing clout, and you know you, you you name it they've got the they've got the food industry wrapped up and it's very difficult for a, an independent food business to have any any sort of entry into that market at all which really means that you know for a small scale local food business to to exist it really is either has to be very very specialized and have a very very different offering or it needs to address the uh, address the sort of luxury or the, the top end of the market and of course well the thing is you know the, the 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 good quality food you know nearly is almost exclusively the preserve of the the sort of small scale local market of course it does create something of a class divide when it comes to being able to access uh, good quality food it was five or six years ago now we, we actually made a, a film uh, a Another of our projects, which we might come on to later on, is something called the Cambridge Food Hub. And we made a film about this, which is still still available on YouTube. And I think we featured hmm, may, maybe up to a dozen sort of local food enterprises. And the vast majority of those that were featured in that film have since gone out of business, which I think really illustrates the difficulty that small-scale food enterprises face in sort of getting themselves established mm. um, but it also really helps illustrate the importance of the food hub project and having infrastructure in place 
what we what we really need to happen is for it to become possible for a market gardener or a food processing business or, or a, um, a, an independent retailer to be able to start up a food business with a, a realistic expectation of making a, a decent living for themselves because once you've once you achieve that 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 becomes the tipping point towards having a a, you know a really sort of transformational vibrant local food system um, which we would all benefit from and without people like cambridge organic the producers would find it more difficult to find a market precisely yes yeah one thing that amazed me uh, looking through the things you sell is that the crisps you sell the potatoes are grown in duxford but the crisps are manufactured by near triplo Yes, yeah, very local product, yeah. Yeah, Saver Smith Crisps, I mean, they've become a growing brand at the moment, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, and what does the future hold? What are you going to be doing in over the next 25 years, Duncan, in, in your bid to uh, realise your mission? It really is about increasing our, our impact, and, and in particular, it's about reaching this tipping point whereby it, it does become possible for... Uh, sort of small-scale grower to, to sort of move over into sustainable agriculture or for um, a local independent food manufacturing business to be able to use local ingredients and add value to them and, and come up with, you know, so something that is just the polar opposite from the processed foods that, you know, have just dominate, just dominate the market at the moment. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the way that we're going to do this is through the Cambridge Food Hub project, um, the Cambridge Food Hub is going to be uh, a sort of f- food storage and distribution centre that um, that ha- predominantly handles food that's come directly from farms that are local to Cambridge. Uh, it's also going to include uh, inc- uh, incubator kitchen spaces that are specifically intended to help stimulate the creation of new small-scale food enterprises. But uh, but more importantly than the the physical building that is the food hub we're putting into practice a new concept in food supply chain coordination which is is very much based on circular economy principles and it is just about making the the local supply chain a lot more efficient for example we we do something that we call our green coffee shop scheme at the moment whereby we're delivering products to local coffee shops, but at the same time as making that delivery, we also collect the used coffee grounds, which then get taken away to one of two destinations. One's a a recycling plant that turns them into coffee logs. People may have seen the the coffee logs around the place these days. Um, And the other half get taken to a local organic farm where they're used for, for compost by not only delivering but collecting at the same time we're being uber efficient with our um, use of vehicles and we're il- eliminating inefficient empty van miles but we're also say ma- making sure that sort of surplus and but reusable products sort of can efficiently make their way to a destination where they're valued but what about the food hub can you see yourself getting there uh yes i oh. I, I i definitely can we've uh, we've, we've had uh, we've had a lot of promising sites put our way and i mean what's got to be said is with a lot of these sites it's quite often the site owner or the developer is approaching us and saying you know we want that food hub on this development um so which 
I, I guess is testimony to the uh, the strength of the proposition. I think at times it, it feels very difficult to us to keep that momentum going because, you know, we are already operating as the food hub. You know, the food hub is operational. That is a thing. And people have probably heard me going on about the food hub as in this this big sort of visionary uh, sort of food centre for, for quite a while now and thinking, well, where, where is it? Well, you know, it, it is it is coming. It's just uh, taking a bit longer. <laughs> Certainly it's taking a lot longer than I, I would have liked it to because, you know, to my mind, the uh, issues that face our food industry, you know, are urgent. Um, and, you know, in the time that we're waiting for this food hub to be built, as I said, compared to that film that we made a few years ago, local food enterprises are going out of business while they're waiting for this food hub to be built. So, you know, there, there is a... It's, it's frustrating that it's taking as long as it is, but... But it's great to hear, Duncan, that it's, <laughs> on, you know, it is likely to happen. That's, yeah. I mean, that is good news. That's very good news. So the next 25 years should be even better than the last 25. Yes, what a great, uh, what a great attitude to have. It absolutely <laughs> will, yes. <laughs> OK, thanks very much, Duncan. Thank, Thank you. you. And you can find the Cambridge Organic on social media. Cambridge Organic website shows how to subscribe to its box scheme and the options that are available. There's also a vacancy for a team member at the moment and more details about that in our job section at the end of the programme. Now details of free food that's available in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app, which exists so that people's or businesses' surplus food doesn't go to waste. Now today's look at Olio for Cambridge shows us that Nick in Arbury has a bag of Alpen, a pack of vanilla and raspberry Oreo biscuits, and six packets of Ella's Kitchen brand baby snacks available. Leia in Kettle's Yard has a two-litre bottle of lemonade to give away, while Sarah in Trumpington has a tin of tofu chunks in chilli and garlic sauce and a tin of water chestnuts. Now, you'll probably find that a lot of the good stuff on Olio is there for less than a day, often only a matter of hours, because Olio tends to have these designated food champions. Now, these are people who collect large quantities of unsold food from various shops, and they distribute it from their own home that evening. Often you'll see plenty of items from Pret-a-Manger being given away, because the label shows that they have to be eaten that evening. So, you'll get a sudden glut of filled baguettes, rolls, wraps, soups, salads, sandwiches and so on. All free, of course, and you have to message the food champion quickly to say, well, yeah, I'd like that uh, bacon roll and two of those hummus wraps, please. And then you need to get down there to pick them up that evening. Now, I'm not saying this is a pain or that it's awkward, but just that you have to be fairly quick off the mark to claim some of these hot items. Now, where things may be slightly easier is with another free app. This one is called Too Good To Go, and it highlights unsold food from local restaurants and shops, often at one-third of the price. Now, rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged into what they call a magic bag, ready for you to take home, instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. Now, I've tried a few of these recently, and my word, you really get some good value. I picked up a magic bag from Greg's the other week with two filled baguettes, one was chicken salad, the other was cheese and ham, and two massive, not small or medium size, mind, massive iced buns. The whole lot came to about 2.85, I think. Now, a friend of mine placed an order at a sushi place near the train station, paid £5 for one of their magic bags, came away with various sushi boxes, 
and we totaled up the value inside to be over just over 30 pounds. Now, that might have been a one-off. You know, she could have been lucky on that day. Maybe they had an excess of stuff to put into their magic bag that evening, but it just proves that you can do well or you can do really well. Too Good To Go has proven several times now, in my experience, to be excellent value. The food itself, always fresh, always spot on. Nothing bad to say about it. It really is well worth installing this app. Well, it's well worth installing both of these apps on your phone because you're stopping good food going to waste and you're getting a bargain. Two apps, too good to pass up. Okay, let's move on to some news now. And we're going to start with the Karim Foundation, who have launched the Cambridge Ramadan Appeal. This is to raise money for local people suffering due to the cost of living crisis. The foundation is a charity that helps supply food and fuel for those who need support. And you can contribute via justgiving.com or you can go via their own website, karimfoundation.co.uk. That's spelt with a K, Karim. Via there, you can go to their Just Giving Cambridge Ramadan Appeal. Next up, the food trucks are reuniting to Clay Farm Community Garden. The start date is the 6th of April, and they will be there weekly after that. Meadows is now selling Levante Kitchen's fresh, handmade tagliatelle every weekend in the Mill Road shop, and the tagliatelle is available to order at their branch in Eltisley Avenue. Finboy's Fish Butchery on Mill Road are now selling their fresh fish, shellfish and deli items like tara masalata and fish soup in the shop at the Gog Magog Farm. That starts today and is then available every day of the week. Stir, the well-known bakery and cafe on Chesterton Road, has opened up a new shop. This one is at 21 Green Street and you can expect to find lots of different coffee blends and flavours, cakes, pastries, breads, in fact, the full range of products from its bakery. Other side, the company which left the engineer's house at Riverside last September, has announced that it hopes to reopen under the name Alcademy. This is at the old HSBC bank on Mitcham's Corner in the next three or four months, hopefully. We look forward to catching up with them. I don't think I've seen the other side guys since they first opened back in 2017, I think it was. Uh, the Grandstons Farmer's Market. Now, this one is opening for the very first time tomorrow. That's the 26th of March. Stalls will include Sweet Pea Market Garden with salads and vegetable crops grown according to agroecological principles. There'll also be stalls selling sourdough bread, jams, pickles and chutneys, pies and pasties. There will be leaf tea from the Tea Apothecary. You might remember them. Tea Apothecary is a stall run by Victoria Roth, who we met last year at Cambridge Market. And here she is now. The wonderful thing with tea is the combinations really are just endless. You can blend tea with anything. I mean, I really have to stop myself from experimenting too much with my flavors and confusing my customers. I have plenty on the Etsy shop that I stock because I love playing about and experimenting with blends. So everything that I'm looking at here, you have created yourself. Yes, so some of the teas are just more unusual teas, like the Genmaichi green teas produced out of one province in Japan. So that doesn't require any of my personal blending. That is just a very lovely, fine tea made with toasted rice and I love introducing people to it. But certainly, most of my range is something that I create and concoct from blending herbs and flowers and fruit pieces and blending black and green ingredients to give them you know, a very different life. So here I really try to offer people something different, maybe introduce them to something new. 
And of course, people come to a place like the market to experience something. Shall we talk about some of the teas now? Yes, yeah? I would love to. What we're looking at here, you have two stool tables, all filled with tea. Now on the front we have the floral teas, is that fair to say? I call them wellness blends. There are four categories, black, base, green base, fruit base, and herbal base. Okay. For those people who are sensitive to caffeine or they prefer having non-caffeinated drinks or something different, the herbal and the fruit teas cater to that. For those who like their more traditional teas but maybe want to experiment with something new, they have the black and the green base teas. And then of course you have the hot and cold drinks on offer. Uh, well, come along, Eddie. We're dying for some lovely cups of refreshing tea. They're like my children, to me. <laughs> but look, there are definitely teas that are my runaway bestsellers. So the Royal Grey, which is a botanical Earl Grey blend, mm -hmm. the botanical G&T, the gin and tonic flavored blend, and my Teddy Bear's Cup tea, which is a, a fruit-based like apple and hibiscus tea, are the ones that, that perform the best. I'm always proud to see how people react to them. You know, I've got my sample station here and when people take off the lid and they take it in and they go, wow, I mean, that's the best feeding, right? That is just, that, that is an incredible feeling to know you've impressed someone with something like that. So I work on more new flavors all the time. That's an exciting part of the process for me as well, is to see what might be the next hot bestseller. I'm Victoria Roth. I trade as the Tea Apothecary. The best place to find me is my website, which is tea-apothecary.co.uk. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. And you're listening to Flavour on Cambridge 105 Radio. Yeah, so as well as the Tea Apothecary being at Gransden's Farmer's Market, you'll also find chocolates, courtesy of From Bean to Bar, and a florist too. This is all in Little Gransden Village Hall. It's from 9 till 1pm on the 26th of March, and it will be held monthly after that. Now there is also another new market. This one is in Northstow, and it starts tomorrow as well, the 26th of March, from 9.30 to 1.30 at the Pathfinder School. You will find both food and non-food stalls there. Now in other news, Velvet Magazine's first annual Food and Drink Awards are underway. Nominations are open and you can vote for the best producer, farm shop or deli, pub or bar, tea room or coffee shop, street food or pop-up, restaurant, chef, and Food Hero of the Year. And you can do all of that via the Velvet website. Okay, that's enough news for now. I'm going to take a quick break, but we will return with a feature on food security and a look back at some well-loved local eateries who may be having an anniversary or two. As well as some more local news and jobs, we will see you in a couple of minutes. Cambridge 105 Radio. Saturday night on Cambridge 105 Radio is all about the soul. Hi, this is Jamie Stocker. Join me here on Cambridge 105 Radio playing two hours of classic, rare and new funk and soul regular features and playing the very best in new music across the funk and soul genres. The Funk and Soul Show with Jamie Stocker tonight at 8, right after Chris Brown on Cambridge 105 Radio. Suicide can be prevented and we can all play our part. One question can save a life. One friend in particular who has been really supportive and been trying to keep me going and keep making contact and keep making me talk and trying to keep me going, realised something was wrong and was trying to contact me. Asking about suicide won't prompt someone to kill themselves. In fact, it will probably help. If you're worried about someone, 
would you ask directly about suicide? I kind of got to the point, because of all the support that she'd given me, and I could see that, you know, she was desperately trying to get hold of me on my phone, that I did eventually answer her call. Learn how to have a life-saving conversation at StopSuicidePledge.org. Make the pledge and sign up for a Stop Suicide training workshop. I'd ask, would you? Nick Wohm's Professional Painting and Decorating Services is your local award-winning decorating business with a great reputation. Our professional and friendly team can cover all aspects of decorating for domestic, commercial and industrial properties. So whether it's a bedroom makeover or an entire office block that needs repainting, we'll get the job done on budget and on time. Check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Nick Wohm's Professional Painting and Decorating Services to see pictures of our work. Or call us today on 07794 516 291. Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome back to Flavor, food and drink in and around Cambridge. Now, food security has become a big issue recently, and there is a panel discussion about it at the Cambridge Festival. The panel, which includes Tim Lang, also has Dr. Emmelyn Rood, the food historian. Sue spoke with Emmeline this week about her take on food security. I guess my role is basically just to, to talk about the background of what food security is. It's quite easy because prior to 1960, there basically wasn't anything called food security because food was very insecure for a very long period of time. Um, so obviously my job would be setting the scene, talking about how difficult it was to farm, how distribution was incredibly difficult, how food prices were super high and sort of how this evolved to become the modern food system, which is obviously incredibly flawed, but we have solved the issue of food security for a very specific segment of the population. Very true. I mean, it's very much a sort of developed world issue that we have food security. The the less economically developed world still has issues of food insecurity, doesn't it? Yes, of course. I mean, the system was built in an age where they didn't really care about global inequality. Like the, the food system that we have today is basically a post-World War II phenomenon and there was still empire then. We're still dealing with the racist thoughts that undergirded empire and so people really didn't care about anyone besides the West. What is it about uh, fish stocks? Because I think this is an area that you're particularly interested in, isn't it? Yeah, so it's very interesting. So they always talk about fish stocks as being sort of new frontier for enhancing food security. So basically my work is on how fish stock collapses change the American food system in particular to see how environmental degradation um, impacted the way people ate and produced food. My findings were basically that fish stock collapses essentially reinforced the industrial food system. Like industrial meat benefited greatly from various aspects of fish stock collapse, be it chaos in food markets, new markets for fertilizer, which is livestock waste initially, and also encouraged livestock producers to use antibiotics in their feed. So it's just a whole environmental degradation basically bolstered this very specific type of agricultural production. Because I gather when you first started your initial research, started your undergraduate degree, you you were looking at, was it something to do with sardines and chickens? No, uh, What's the link? <laughs> no, my undergrad, I was very, so I've been a vegetarian my whole life. And the fact that people eat chicken is very strange to me. Like imagine your least favorite food and then imagine it at every single meal and how much you have to avoid it. Fair enough. That was my childhood. We're making jokes about how it tasted like nothing and it was just absolutely everywhere and I didn't understand it. So as an undergrad, um, I had to write a thesis 
And I decided to write my thesis exploring the weird phenomenon that is chicken eating and the fact that it's so ubiquitous today. And from the chickens, I just got, I learned about the big massive sardine collapse in California in the 1940s. I'm not sure if your listeners are aware of Cannery Row, the Steinbeck novel, which is about this area of Monterey, California that used to be a big sardine canning capital. Basically, post-World War II, they fished all the sardines into oblivion. And it was these sardines that primarily went into chicken feed. Yeah, so most fish stocks today are driven by a demand for animal food. It's um, crazy, yeah. rather than for human food. Yeah, well. so there's a big debate over whether it's more efficient to eat these fish directly or if it's more efficient to feed them to animals. Obviously, I'm not an expert on that. I do know from my own historical research, just because a fish is edible doesn't mean people will eat it. That was the issue with sardine. The market was just not there for human food. As a result, there was a huge market, though, for animal feed. Research basically showed that if you feed single-chambered stomach animals, so basically pigs and chickens, fish, they just have the tiniest of tiny margins of increased growth. They're still not sure why, but it does. But when you're in an intensive livestock operation where those tiny margins really matter it is a huge sort of gain for this specific mode of production. Anyway, there's a convoluted story. So basically, that's how I got into fish. So really, industrialized food production. Mm. Yeah, just sort of understanding. I've always just wondered why people eat all of the weird things that we do and all the specific things. And as a vegetarian, it always seems to come back to meat and the huge quantities of meat that people eat and the fact that people only eat like three animals on Earth. I remember as a kid, I used to get a lot of flack for my parents because I was a vegetarian. No one else in my family was vegetarian. I became a vegetarian at eight. And I only didn't eat three things, basically. I didn't eat pork, chicken, or beef. My brother didn't eat anything else besides pork, chicken, and beef. He was the, the good eater, and I was a spoiled one. And I didn't quite understand why that was the case. I'm sure my parents have a different take on this story, <laughs> but I'm going to stand by it. But mm. it was just, I've always been found other people's eating habits very odd. So are you a pescatarian then? Do you eat, do you eat fish? So not at all. So you're a vegan. Jared. I eat yeah. eggs. I eat milk. Okay. I'll eat mm-hmm. the occasional oysters. I also will dabble in meat. I like to taste it. There's lots of reasons to be vegetarian uh, for ethical ones. I'm primarily, I just don't like it. Taste. So I will try it sometimes just to see what it tastes like. But So how do you feel that your take on this is going to be fitting into the talk that's coming up? In the modern discourse on food and food security, there seems to be a very specific mode of how we're supposed to solve these problems. The issues are monocultures. The issues are overfishing. The issues are... Grow your own meat. <laughs> yeah, or sort of like, yeah, this idea that an heirloom tomato will save the world, which I'm not biased against. I agree that an heirloom tomato is delicious and like there's a lot of merit to that. But I think people are missing the reasons why the system is the way it is. I don't think it was built out of malice. I think it was built out of solving very specific, very urgent problems. But the issue is because that requires money, that requires time, that requires building all the stuff. We're kind of stuck with these structures that solve problems that aren't necessarily as pressing now as they were then. So I think my argument would be, people always love to throw out the phrase, the food system is broken. Like everything is, is, is horrible and wrong, but I would argue the food system is working perfectly fine as it was designed to be 40, 50 years ago. The problem is obviously those concerns aren't the same concerns we have now. So as a result, instead of viewing it as like this broken system that's super flawed, I think it's better to understand it as one that was built for a specific way. And in order to change it, we have to understand why. So the system was basically built to provide huge quantities of meat to... Cheaply. Yes. Mm. To Westerners, because, I mean, 
Prior to 1960s, feeding people was really hard. It was super expensive. There was food crises constantly. Over the course of the 19th century, essentially mortality increased. People were shorter because the all the chaos of the Industrial Revolution and all this movement basically disrupted the food system and there's just really poor nutrition everywhere. And this had real, not just physical ramifications, but political ramifications. Revolutions start with the lack of food. Mm. And so they built this system for good reason. Obviously, a lot of it was the United States and a lot of it was very corporate driven. And I don't necessarily agree with the decisions they made, obviously, but they made their decisions to meet certain corporate, certain political and certain sort of basically biological interests. And they did it. I mean, chicken, coming from protected chicken, if you, t- if you take out all of the incredible environmental and human and animal issues associated with the system. It's wild. Chicken is so cheap. We've managed to produce the most efficient form of animal protein ever conceived on earth. And the price of chicken has basically stayed steady for 30 years. It doesn't pace with inflation. But generally speaking, it is an incredible feat of human ingenuity. But the issues, of course, is like we no longer need this ingenuity. We need a system that cares about the planet, that cares about people, that cares about the chicken, I guess. How do we still meet these goals of producing enough food without letting food prices rise enough? The system is very effective at what it does. The problem is it's so entrenched and it's so, there's so many entrenched interests in it that changing it is not, it's not a matter of heirloom tomatoes. It's a matter of incredibly deep structural and a lot of very difficult decisions that I think a lot of people will not like. I mean, it's interesting, the recent issue about food shortages on the supermarket shelves and this point about we've forgotten about seasonality. Mm. What's your view on that? Well, seasonality has been gone for a century. If you want to look at the historic perspective, that's not really a, a modern flaw in the system. Seasonality would be good if people could cook by the seasons. Oh, yeah, and buy into it, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, so that is the issue. Like, So I get an organic seasonal veg box because I'm bougie delivered to me. And even me, somebody who's obsessed with food, somebody who you know loves cooking, I still struggle to figure out how to cook cabbage every week and how to do all these things. And, and I know I'm very much ahead of my peers in this subject. So the idea of making some of my friends who only know how to maybe cook broccoli or a red meal mm, <laughs> to like learn how to cook with the seasons, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it requires a lot more A, you know, teaching people how to cook, giving people incentives to actually cook specific things and vegetables you know, not giving money, not promoting. I mean, ready meals are not bad because people have time. I mean, ah, I don't know. This is the thing about it's two minds. It's a it's very complex tough. area, yeah. isn't it? Really is. Well, it's yeah. tough because at the same time, because you know, historically, who's cooking? Women are stuck in the kitchen up until the 1970s, mm. and so. But then, and then, teaching people how to cook. If if people had more time, obviously, I think people would love to cook. So that means giving more people more leisure time, making people you know, have less strenuous job. It's just like a whole, it's a whole system. So seasonality is not just this idea oh, yeah. of if we have, you know, more leeks during mm-hmm. leek season and more apples during apple season. It's a whole, you need to teach people actually to be able to A, enjoy these seasonal vegetables and B, to cook them and actually provide a demand for them. What do you think might be the outcome of this talk? What would you hope to be the outcome of the talk? Oh, I don't know. To be honest, I don't really know what... um, I've read the bios of the other participants, but I don't really know 
firmly what their views are. Have there been solutions? Yeah, so that is the, that is the thing. I, so my parents are both agricultural economists. So we've, I've talked to them a lot about this. Because this is the problem is you have people who care passionately about food. and people, I get interviewed a lot about meat. And people always expect me to have a very specific answer. So the future of meat will be more heirloom chickens and it'll, people will care. And I don't think, as somebody who loves food and thinks food is amazing, I am well aware that care that much about food that they eat. It's really sad. Well, I think flavorlessness do. No, I mean, not in like a derogatory way, but it's just sort of like, it's just not people's priorities, which is fine. So I think true change in the food system cannot be this consumer-driven one because that is the one that gets shoved down people's throats. If only people knew how to cook seasonally, if only oh, people yes. bought heirloom tomatoes, when the real issue is entrenched corporate power, government policy, and all of this, whether it was established for good or bad reasons, is legacies again of the history of the food system. So I think I think a lot of the discourse points to I guess it's a very neoliberal consumers will save the day by just choosing to consume the right things, but I think that is deeply flawed and yes. will not actually do anything because it's not really Yeah. Consumers don't have the power because as yeah. you say the corporations are too powerful. Yeah, so. or it's not even it's not even just pure corporations are too powerful. It's just consumers don't really the food system is so dispersed that even if people, you know, bought more gosh, it wouldn't really impact how the structures of food production is actually made. Like people, again, talk about all like veganism, vegetarianism is on the rise. Meat production hasn't gone down. Meat production has increased at the same time. No, and um, also vegan and vegetarian food can be ultra processed in the same way. So so I think, I mean, I think it has to be more of a structural government thing, but I'm not an expert. Hopefully Tim Lang and other people on the panel will have more to speak on yeah. what the actual solutions are. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Dr. Emmeline Rood on the panel discussion. That will be on the 27th of March from 7.30 to 9pm at the Babbage Lecture Theatre. And that's on the new museum site in Downing Street. Booking is essential, whether you're attending in person or following it via a live stream. OK, time for a bit more news now, beginning with wine. And very appropriately... With Easter coming up, Cambridge wine merchants have a chocolate and wine pairing at their Cherry Hinton Road branch on the 4th of April. It will be hosted by Mama Bonbon. It's £25 a head. And to book, just email cherry at cambridgewine.com or phone Cambridge 214-548. Now, I met with Hal Wilson, one of the co-founders of Cambridge Wine Merchants, a few years ago in the Cherry Hinton Road branch. And here he is talking about what it takes to make it in the wine retail industry these days. People predicted the death of high street retail a long time ago, and some businesses like Threshers, you know, we're sitting in a shop that was a wine rack, and that whole business is gone, and it had 1,500 shops, you know, and a lot of employees. These are big businesses, Woolworths, and another one was Oddbins in our sector. They just didn't have enough to offer to keep themselves in business in the face of competition from the internet and from big supermarket giants. So if you're going to be in retail, you've got to be a destination. You've got to make what you have to offer really interesting and exciting and enticing to people. Yes, we do all these things and we sell bottles of wine. And that's almost the afterthought because we spend so much time thinking about comedy nights and the music nights and the wine tastings and the gin club and the wine fairs and the, the exciting events that people want to come to, you know, the food park evenings and the steak and honour nights. You know, we, we started all of that and we had to, to come up with new ways of engaging with customers in order to stay relevant. I remember the government's initiative where they signed up Mary Portas to try and revitalise the high streets in so many dying towns. And she got it wrong. 
Whereas you were able to take advantage of all of the technologies that were coming on at the time. You, you know, you were in a city like Cambridge where things are relatively compact, but also snare onto Twitter and Instagram to get your customers aware of what's going on in an evening here and they see the latest things that you've got in. Yes, the food and drink community in Cambridge has really evolved as much more of a community-minded thing. You know, the street food movement, those are independent operators. Cambridge now has more independent wine merchants per head than any other city in the UK. So we are wine central and independent wine central. And where there were four Robins, now there are four Cambridge wine merchants. So feels that sometimes we're a bit cheek by jowl because it is quite a small place, but there's enough for everybody and, and we have different things to offer. And the supermarkets and Thresher never really had that ability to really enthuse you know, from the heart about the wines they were selling. And there's nobody in a Tesco's to really tell you anything about the wine range, which is fine. You know, there's plenty of information, and they lead on price, etc. You come to any Cambridge wine merchants, and hopefully you see people who know what they're selling, want to open a bottle in front of you and taste it with you, and put a smile on your face to take that bottle away. Yeah. That's always been a difference, and it's one that I think chimes more with people today than possibly 10 years ago. You know, if you want to buy something at the cheapest price, go online and buy it at the cheapest price. We still hope that the wine that you buy from us, you go online and you'll, you'll still buy it from us, you know, whether you're living in Cambridge or not. But if you really want to get to know the wine, you can't do that online, you can't do that in a supermarket, you can't really, really do it in anywhere other than specialist places where people know what they're selling. And it's not just wine, it's, you know, it's electronics, it's... I think the Apple stores are great for going to play. We want people to come and play with what we have to sell as well. We, we see it in those terms rather than just, we want to sell you something. The UK wine industry is pretty tough on retailers. There's a very high duty. We're not really a big producing nation, so you've got to ship wine from quite a long way. But that's the way to actually survive, is to try and get relationships with really good producers and ship from them. And if you can do it exclusively, you can make a real noise about the fact that you have this wonderful wine. Decanter magazine, the main consumer magazine for people who like wine, they have panel tasting, so they look at a different region. They had a panel tasting for grower champagne. Champagne made by people who grow the grapes and make the wines themselves, rather than the bigger negociants, like Merlinchon or Verflicot, et cetera, who are buying grapes from the growers to make the wine. So just grower champagnes, but from a really large and interesting field of 100 wines, the one that we import, we've loved for 10 years, came out head and shoulders above everything else, with a score of 98, and we've sold thousands of bottles, thanks to Decanter for... But all the judges loved it the best. The price was right. It's nice to have validation of what we already knew and what our customers who've been buying it for years know. There we go. That was Hal Wilson, one of the founders of the Cambridge Wine Merchants, who helped make the wine shop a destination in itself. With tastings, food and wine pairing events, taste-offs, professional wine courses and plenty more, more than just a place simply to nip in and out of quickly to get your bottle of wine. Now, the Cambridge Wine School has a four-part evening class on Irresistible Italy. They've got 24 wines to taste across the four evenings. The cost for this is £140, and the tastings take place in the Venetian Wine Bar by Bus Stop 1 at 21 Station Place. However, if you'd rather not sign up for all four courses, each one can be booked separately at £35 each. So, on the 4th of April, it's North and Northwest Italy. On the 11th of April, it's North East Italy. Then Central, Tuscany, on the 18th. And finally, Southern Italy, Sicily and Sardinia on the 25th of April. 
Next up, the wine rooms in Hills Road. They have a tasting on the 30th of March of Austrian Gruner Wedliner wines, with one of the wines dating back to 1993. The tasting on the 6th of April is of Loire Reds, and it's a very interesting vertical tasting of Solonque wines from Mazdois in Spain, with seven consecutive vintages from 2005 to 2012. And that is all at the wine rooms in Hills Road. Now, Amphora, the wine shop on Devonshire Road, has some tasting evenings coming up too. On the 29th of March, there are wines from South Africa, then it's Old World versus New World, a blind tasting on the 5th of April, and Wines from Georgia, the birthplace of wine. That's on the 12th of April. All of these begin at 8pm. They are all at Amphora in Devonshire Road at a cost of £35. There's an international whiskey tasting with Elliot Levi. Now, he's formerly head of Cambridge University Whiskey Society, and this is taking place at Thirsty on Chesterton Road. It includes six whiskies, with two of them being Japanese ones. There'll also be tasty goodies from Areno on the night, and that night is Wednesday the 29th of March at 7.30, at a cost of £30. And news that Mark Poynton has moved on from the Shepherds to run a tasting menu-only restaurant at Caister Hall in Norfolk. Now, listeners may know Mark was the chef director at the Shepherds here in Cambridge, Prior to that, he was Chef Patron at Alimentum on Hills Road, where he won a Michelin star, and before that was head chef at Midsummer House. Mark was famous for creating interesting dishes, including, well, his most recent creation, rhubarb and rosemary baked Alaska. Out of interest, uh, Leo Rethoff was a former chef at Alimentum. He now runs Steak and Honor Burger in Wheeler Street and the street food vans too. So that's just an example of the six degrees of separation that you sometimes get with food people and food places in Cambridge. Now for some sad news from the other week. Simon Gibson of Simon Cider has passed away. When you next have a drink, please raise a glass to Simon. A warming mulled cider from Simon Cider was always a highlight of our fair. And that was from the Mill Road Winter Fair Twitter account. Simon made his first 100 litres of cider over a decade ago using a small basket press and scratter. He sold his first cider, called As It Comes, at the Cambridge Beer Festival in 2015. And as his website says... The main driving force has always been to use fruit that would otherwise be wasted, and we've stuck to that ethos. The joy in cider is, unless something goes wrong, none of the cider is ever wasted. The real art of cider making is in the blending, taking a cider that's just okay and making it superb. Here's Simon talking to Sue a couple of years ago when she went to meet him and Rob Boosfield of Heathfruit Farm to talk about their year's pickings. This is a relationship that we built up over the last two or three years into me making cider. We're getting together with Rob, who has an orchard that has got an, an eclectic range of, of apples. And that's what we want as cider makers. We want range, we, we want interesting stuff. And the first time I approached Rob, he said no. We're, we're busy. Really? Did you, did you really say no? He always says that, but I can't remember. <laughs> he did. Yeah, he said, no, we, we haven't got any apples left. About three years into my business, I messaged Rob again, and he said, yes, we've got capacity. You can have some apples if you want them. And the relationship's been built from there. As a business, Simon Cider has always been about using waste apples. It's never been about premium quality apples. It's never been about going and buying the best stuff from where you can get it. It's been about getting the best you can from what is available as waste. And for Rob, 
It's greyed outs, it's the stuff they don't want off the trees, it's the bum-shaped apples, it's the scabby apples, it's all those sorts of things, the Kardashians. Kardashian the apples, Kardashians. yes. <laughs> it's always been about taking the apples that would otherwise be thrown on the field and chucked away. It provides income for the growers that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And it also means that we get the best apples, we get the ripest apples, because Rob as a grower will pick apples that are generally slightly underripe because he needs to store them for sale and they'll ripen in the cold store and they'll ripen in the sheds. Whereas what we want is we want ripe apples because sugar is alcohol. Exactly. That's the business I'm in. Simon Gibson, the fencing contractor who saw apples rotting in his client's gardens and decided to make his own cider. He will be much missed. Now, moving on to our final feature today, and Alan noted that there are quite a lot of anniversaries this month. This was sparked by the fact that Kofco, now known as Cambridge Organic, turned 25 in March, and there's other places that have become well-established in Cambridge too. The thing is, when you do a fortnightly food programme, you tend to exist in fortnightly cycles, and time consequently goes by like a rocket. Before you know it, places that you remember opening just the other week have been around for a decade. So here's a chance for me to rifle through the archives and play some first clips of places that are now part of the established Cambridge woodwork. Is that the right expression? Well, let's begin with hot numbers. They opened 12 years ago. Here's me sounding like a Cockney chipmunk talking with owner Simon Fraser in early 2011 about how it all began. Hot Numbers is an independently run gourmet coffee house situated on Guider Street, which is just off Mill Road. And uh, Simon, welcome to Flavour on Cambridge 105. Hi there, Matt. Your website, it says that the idea for Hot Numbers came from a particular coffee experience you had in Australia. Yeah, that's right. I've been travelling probably about 10 years ago, actually, and I went sort of around Southeast Asia, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, and actually got into coffee then when I was in a little little island called Koh Tao and drinking a lot of coffee when it was when it was raining quite heavily and uh, actually carried on and ended up sort of stuck in Australia for a little bit. And I remember sampling this amazing drink, just thinking how I've never tasted coffee this good, you know, from these old disco shop days when I used to be given a cup of instant and uh, sort of grabbed me as to why we didn't have that culture back home actually and that's inspired me to do what I'm doing now. I've been making coffee for about 10 years and really getting into it and you have to you have to texture the milk correctly you use microfoam and you'll often hear this horrible screeching sound if you go into a lot of coffee shops when they're steaming the milk mm. that's a big problem to me because what they're actually doing is is burning the milk they're uh, you know they're boiling it and uh, you should you should never ever hear that sound so oh, really? what you should do is introduce a little bit of air to start with and then just make sure it's spinning around nicely in the jug and using a small milk jug so that the milk is always fresh you just use a little bit so you know you've got to texture it just get the air in get it spinning and then you end up with a lovely microphone where you can pour in nice patterns i use whole milk as well filtered milk mm-hmm. what i really what i really don't like is when you get these massive buckets of milk which you kind of often get in starbucks and a lot of oh, these yeah. places yeah. and uh, I'm really trying to go against that and to have a nice, bring back like we used to have, I think, in England a long time ago, which is stronger drinks, mm-hmm. um, proper tasting coffee, and that's really what it's about. So I've reduced the cup size, increased the dose of coffee, but every coffee should taste very good. And time has shown that Simon was well onto a winner there. Hot Numbers opened its second branch on Trumpington Street a few years later. Now it has a large roastery in Shepworth. He even used to have a jazz program on this station, you know, and he plays a mean saxophone solo. Well, next up is a really nice chap called Frank, Frank Panan. He used to run Le Gros Franc on Hills Road, which started 33 years ago. Uh, I first met Frank in May 2011. 
When I was a Boy Scout, I was a chef. I was cooking for uh, when I was what ten years old. Oh, I wow. was uh, doing the food for the for the troops, and this is where the love uh, I think of food uh, come from. And now that you've been a chef for a good few decades now, yes. Yes. What do you think are the best qualities for a good chef to have? The good chef first, he have to wake up the morning and to be happy to uh-huh. do what he's doing. You know. I see, it's not a morning I get up and I'm not happy to come in my kitchen and to... It's a love, love. Uh, it's a love to see my customer waiting on the counter upstairs. Yeah. And they're watching the food and they putting the tongue, you know. And... I know I know what you mean. So every day it does not feel like work. It's like yes, a, and yeah. you see them and you see what you've done all the morning from 5.30. Yeah. Happy, you know. Are you saying English? Sleep? Lecher les babines, we said in French. Like, like lip smacking. Like yes, yes, yeah? yes, yes, yeah? yes. Yeah, and you just see that and that's it. For me, my day is done. You know? <laughs> that's, what, that's what you do it. Ah, yes, yeah, yeah. For that. <laughs> to make people happy, you know. Five years on, I caught up with Franck and his wife Ling Ling. He had closed Le Gros Franck Café restaurant on Hills Road, bought some vans to sell street food, and set up a new restaurant, La Maison du Steak, which you can find on Hills Road still. Frank saw the changing trends in food fashion and he reacted accordingly. I see 2016. Y- yes. We have Paul Michel. Paul Michel, French street food at its best. Pulled meat cooked with love in an old vintage Renault Estafette. I hope I said that right. There was not a lot at the time when I opened uh, Poul Michery on street food. Mm-hmm. So we start at the right time. And there's a lot of pubs, bars, events. Because I mean, it's so many years in my kitchen, a bit frustrated cooking, you know, I don't see the customer so much. Mm-hmm. And now with the street food, I'm on the outside, I meet people, you know, and the contact is a direct contact. And that is something I love. Yeah. I love it. And the happiness it's on like the face of the people when they receive their food as well. Yeah. I always remember at Le Gros Franc, I start at 4 o'clock in the morning and cooking the croissants, the new salad, everything fresh from the morning. For me, it's everything now. You know, yeah. after a certain age, I've been in my uh, so many years in my kitchen, frustrated. You know, now I love it. Cook me in your breakfast and put me on your plate Cause you know I taste great when I came to see you just briefly yesterday, yes. everybody was after your brisket. That's right. Yeah, the brisket is a the brisket is a big seller. We cook it for uh, six hours. We rub it with a special sauce, a secret sauce, you know. After we dry it in the oven for another hour with different spicy, different things. We're doing a very good business. I mean, a good business, and people enjoy enjoy it. People love it. Yeah, they certainly do. And that's just a couple of the places that we've come to appreciate as part of the Cambridge food scene through the years, along with Duncan Catchpole's Cambridge Organic from the beginning of the programme. There's always lots of interesting food-relating things going on in this city. There's Green Onions signalling our job section, and the Cambridge Community Kitchen needs volunteer cooks. To apply, go to cckitchen.uk, click on that volunteer button. Cambridge Organic is looking for a new team member to work on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Saturdays. The hours are from 7 till 10am, and the role is to help with setting up in the morning, packing and getting delivery items together. 
The pay is £11.05 an hour, plus a free fruit and veg box. Can't be bad. To apply, email hello at cambridgeorganic.co.uk. Now, here's a quick roundup of other jobs. If you like the sound of any of these, you can apply via the company's website or just pop in for a chat during a quiet time. So, first up, senior or head chefs are needed at Hot Numbers and Wagamama. Chefs are needed at Coat Pint Shop, which is looking for chefs at all levels, Aromi and the Boathouse. Pizza chefs are needed by Scott's All Day on Mill Road and at Aromi and Charlie's Coffee Company in Burley Street, Pizza Pilgrims and Hot Numbers in Shepworth. Sous chefs are needed by Cam's Cuisine and the Cricketers Pub. And finally, chefs de party are needed at Clare College, the Old Spring Pub, Soul and Duck and Bill's Restaurant in Green Street. All of which brings us to the end of today's programme. You can catch Flavour on Alternate Saturdays at 12 noon. We're repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. And of course, Flavour will be available as a podcast early in the next week. Coming up next on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1pm is The Gadget Guide with Robin Lawrence and at 2pm it's Sue Marchant's Selection. But that is all from us. We will be back on the 8th of April with plenty more food and drink news, jobs and features. So until then, goodbye.